Hello and welcome to a new SIS Masters podcast, weekly podcast where we interview leaders in the sports industry. Very different topic today with a very special guest, Simon Chadwick, one of the international specialists in sport and geopolitical economy. Professor Simon Chadwick is a researcher, writer, academic consultant, policy advisor and speaker with more than 25 years experience in the global sports industry. His work focuses on the geopolitical economy of sport. He is now professor of sport and geopolitical economy at Schema Business School in Paris, where he is also a member of its think tank Publica, as well as program directors of Schema's global executive MBA in sport. Simon previously co-founded different programs. He has been teaching in several of the world's most prestigious business schools and written numerous articles, books, and research reports for the likes of Forbes, Sloan Management Review, The Wall Street Journal, and many more. Today, we will hear his perspective on the shifting geopolitical landscape within the global sports industry and the emergence of new influential players. We will speak about how countries or regions use sport as a mean to broader political or economical goals. Very interesting topic. I hope you will enjoy it. Hi, Simon. How are you today? Where are you in the world? You the most famous global citizen in the sports industry. <laughs> so I was in the United States last week. Um, I'm going to be in Paris next week. Uh, Can I say, unfortunately, I'm in Britain this week. Um, and I say unfortunately because it's raining, of course. But uh, yeah, I'm 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 at home in my house in Britain at the moment. I'm happy you're going to be happy to be back in Paris. <laughs> I will be happy to be back. Um, it's a great chance, and I'm very happy to discuss with you about your favorite topic, geopolitical economy of sports. Uh, that's quite a fascinating one and complex one, I would say, where we need people like you that are very specific and knowledgeable. But as we begin today's discussion, I would love you to provide us with some background information about yourself and explain how you developed an interest in these specific topics, the intersection of sports and geo geopolitical economy. Okay. Um, I guess very, very quickly to say that I started out as a you know, schoolboy sports fan. Um, fortunate enough to study a degree in economics uh then for a while i i worked in business but it was a very short while decided to become a teacher um whilst i was teaching i enrolled for a master's got my first university job when i was in my first university job it was around the time that the premier league had started and i was taking a, a great deal of interest in the commercial development of the Premier League and talking about things like sponsorships and branding and so forth, which at the time in the in the 1990s, most people would say to me, why are you doing this? You know, it's not relevant. Um, but I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, moving on from that, I enrolled to do a PhD in sports sponsorship. Uh, that got me an even better university job, but also kind of introduced me to the, the world of business and I started to do much more work with with industry and and different types of organization working in the industry on governing bodies sponsors commercial partners um some clubs teams events and you know kind of fast forward I guess to to the last decade or maybe 15 years I found myself traveling to to places like China but also the Gulf region 
and and this was an experience that I thought, ah, this is kind of familiar. You know, there's still football and there's still motor racing and there's still tennis and golf. Um, but it does seem different. And and it seems different in the way that as a kind of old fashioned European sports fan, you know, you're kind of born and brought up with a team. Um, but also as an academic who'd been reading lots of uh, research and books and literature from the United States, the commercial development of, of, of sport. You know, when I would sit in downtown Shanghai, for example, I would think, well, none of that really explains what happens here. And so I started to reflect upon what what were some of the similarities and differences between sport in Shanghai and sport in New York and also between sport in London or Paris and sport in Riyadh or Doha. And out of this came what I now call the geopolitical economy of sport, which might sound abstract and conceptual and you know the, the typical kind of thing that academics uh, think about. Um, but last week I was in New York and, and um, I was invited as part of my trip there to go and visit a, a very large and high profile organization in sport. And and. For me, it was a great trip because it was really interesting. I enjoyed talking to them, but it was also validation because in simple terms, they said to me, hey, this is really relevant and valuable and important to what we do. And so what did I you guess think as an, about? Well, well yeah, just for example, you know, just to give you one example, we talked about we I, I talked there at this organization um, about the athletes that they represent. And these athletes uh, are being offered sometimes incredible amounts of money to, for instance, go to places like Saudi Arabia to take part in matches, tournaments, promotional activities, um, to be seen shaking the hands of, of people who perhaps they don't even know. And I, I, I select Saudi Arabia specifically because obviously Certainly in the global north or in the west, whichever we, whichever way we want to, to to characterize this, you know, the, Saudi Arabia comes with baggage. There are there are some suspicions. Uh, there are obviously uh, concerns about, for instance, human rights record, and so this juxtaposition of athletes, you know, they play sport. You know, this juxtaposition of athletes uh, and commercial opportunity, but also at the same time. These kind of highly charged and sensitive geopolitical environments. Um, it's it's really kind of in 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 the Venn diagram. I sit in the middle. That's that's what I'm interested in. I sit in the middle. So I guess what I'm trying to do is is spot trends, spot developments, try to understand the world. You know, adding a twist of my my European background, my understanding of, of the U.S. market, but also being very familiar with what happens in places like the Gulf and and, and China as as two examples. And then really thinking through, okay, so what are the ramifications of that? Um, and, and as I say, you know, athletes going to the Gulf region, we may have Messi on his way there, Ronaldo's already there. Uh, what that means for them, what that means for their representatives, what that means for their commercial partnerships, what it means for the Saudi Arabians, what it means for FIFA um, is really very much what I focus on right now. Hmm. All those topics are very I mean, we live in, in a moving world, that's no doubt, and you know it better than anyone. Sometimes we see things with a very uh, narrow window, which is the one we grew up in. Uh, and seeing things as a European is very different. For example, if you go to the World Cup it's, as a European and you get to the World Cup and you see how it is, 
you come back with a different vision because you were just not, you don't, didn't have the, the experience of it. So where I want to go is that you're lucky enough. It's not luck. I mean, you developed it to have seen different things in the world and dis- understand different ma- mindsets. But more globally, what do you think, um, how have global political and economic shifts impacted the sports industry in recent years? I mean, I would love you to provide examples of key decisions and events that demonstrate that there is a shift, that it's not European sport as it was and it has been for long or commercial sport in the US. Uh, but there's a, there's a way deeper shift in the sports industry, in the global sports industry. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I, uh, I have been incredibly fortunate to have traveled a lot. Um, and that comes from, uh, from my father in particular, who was a travel agent. He was the manager of a travel agency when I was a kid. So there's, there's something, you know, inside my DNA. You know, I'm, I'm from a family of immigrants as well. So, you know, I, I'm, I was born to travel. Uh, my carbon footprint, I think, is a problem. Absolutely. Uh, but beyond that, I, I think I've always, um, I've always approached travel and experiences and different cultures and different countries with a very open heart and a very open mind. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the great things about the world is, is most people are actually very, very nice. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some bad people in the world, but there are actually far, far more really nice people around the world who will talk and, and listen and share and, and work with you on, on such things. Um, and so, in that sense, given the opportunity to, 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 to move around the world and to travel around the world and to experience these things, I guess in simple terms, you know, the, the bottom line when I'm in front of a class is, is, is when I get asked about controversial subjects, like for instance, sport washing mm-hmm. is, uh, it depends whose couch or whose sofa you're sat on. Because I think if you're sat on a, on a sofa in, in downtown Paris, the way that you might see Sport washing is very different to if if you were sat on a sofa in downtown Dubai, for example, or in you know downtown Beijing, and and so this this I, I, as you, your question, you know, we we see the world through our our lens, and our lens is very often socioculturally and, and politically created. You know, we're, we're conditioned to see the world in a, in a way by our parents, by our upbringing, by the countries where we've spent our time. But it doesn't necessarily mean that other people see the world in exactly the same way as you do. And 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 so understanding that and acknowledging it and trying to um, determine how that impacts upon what we do as people across the world is is really important. In terms of in terms of shifts, I mean, for me, there are three big shifts more generally. Um, and, and I guess as a, just as a, as a kind of related aside, sports in some ways, sport is not special. You know, sport, sport is just like movies and like information technology and financial services and engineering components and so on and so forth. You know, it's, it's just another sector of, of, of our contemporary lives. You know, I, I, I was going to call it an industrial sector, but I won't offend the purists who are out there. So uh, sport is being affected by what I call gigatrends in the same way as other industrial sectors are. And these giga trends are globalization, and, and we're all familiar with globalization now. And, and um, you know, we can think through examples of, of how and where sport has been impacted in that way. But we've also got digitalization, 
for people who are younger than us, I guess that they are um the internet is just something that they don't even think about. It's just there. It's it's omnipotent. Um you know, I remember a time where when in my parents' house we didn't even have a telephone, let alone an internet connection. Um so I think you know we, we mustn't and we shouldn't underestimate the ongoing impact of digitalization. But I think we're also um, now living in, in, in the midst of, of climate change and the environmental consequences that are that are um, flowing out of uh, oil and gas consumption or fossil fuel consumption over the last century. And, and, and that directly impacts upon sport. In fact, all three, globalization, digitalization, environmentalism impact upon, upon sport. Uh, but where we're beginning to to th- to 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 see this, uh, if we're to take a tangible example, you know, I I choose one in particular, which is is Formula One. Mm. Um, Formula One, as we know uh, n- now, there are four races in the Gulf region. You go back to the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, there were no races in the Gulf region. Now there are four. Uh, you have Aston Martin invested in into sorry you have Saudi Arabia invested into the Aston Martin team uh, into the McLaren team you've also got Bahrain as as the majority shareholder in the McLaren team uh, you've got Saudi Aramco Saudi Arabian state oil company uh, is one of the title sponsors of 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 Formula 1 now but i think beyond that You've also got to look at the calendar and, and, you know, go back to the late seventies, early eighties. And, and Formula One was a sport that was predominantly European. Mm. Most of the races were staged in Europe. Um, you know, two thirds, maybe three quarters of the race, races were staged in Europe. And yet now, uh, Europe is in the minority. Most Formula One races aren't now staged in Europe. They're staged in. The Gulf regions, they're staging you know, places like China, for example. We've seen Russia, um, South Korea, Japan, you know, the US, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, and, and, and so forth. So we, we see this pivot and this pivot is taking place, uh, taking, taking place for, 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 for many reasons. But I think the way in which I see these and the way, the way in which I package them, um, and, and label them is, is there are geographic reasons, there are, there are um, political reasons, there are economic reasons. Hence, when I talk about the geopolitical economy of sport, it's trying to really get to grips with not only the, the gigatrends, the context within which sport and the geopolitical economy is, is, is evolving and changing, but also some of the specifics that are now impacting upon, for example, you know, Saudi Arabia investing heavily in sport, particularly motorsport. Hmm. So we take from so the giga trends, globalization, digitalization, environmental challenges, I would say. Hmm. Formula One as a good example of how the Gulf is investing. Um, many people think that sports is apolitical, uh, should be apolitical. <laughs> my, my opinion is it can't be black or white. There's nothing like that. It's everything inter, interlinked, uh, political economy, society, and so on. But how do you think a country, if we take uh, Saudi Arabia, is using sport to really uh, very much as a soft power to increase their global influence? What do you think, as a, what do you think is the purpose behind that? And taking examples, eventually the efficiency of it. I guess at a very simple level, sport has always been political. 
because when you decide to play football with 11 players on each team for 90 minutes, they're political decisions. Obviously, they're, they're, they're perhaps different types of political decision compared to the Saudi Arabian government investing in sport, but they're still political decisions. So for anybody who who would say that you know, sport and politics shouldn't mix, I think politics is part of sport's DNA. And, and if you, you think about the 19th century and, and, and the formal codification of football, you know, you look at the, 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 the clubs, many of which still exist today. They were an outcome of local economic and political forces. And, and you think about the, the big names, you know, Juventus and Munich and Manchester United and others. Um, they, they were, they, they were unique in the way that they, um, flowed out of local economic and political conditions and, and i guess geography as well you know which uh, which is part of the geopolitical economy um i think it's, it's, it's if if we then kind of extend forward obviously sport has become more politicized uh, over the last century um in in terms of how we now see it 1936 olympics and nazi germany you've got the 1978 world cup in argentina and and the, the military hunter um, and so on and so forth. But where, where we are now, I think, is, is, um, at an, in, in a new era of, of politics and, and geopolitics and geopolitical economy within sport, because we are seeing nations and state institutions directly engaged in sport for policy and strategy purposes. And if I could give a, 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 a one example, which hopefully serves to illustrate this before I talk specifically about Saudi Arabia, the example I give is my own, my own country, Britain, which for a long time now has been using football in particular as, as a, as an instrument of soft power. There is even a, a project called Premier Skills, which is a, um, which is a collaboration between the, the English Premier League and the British Council. And what Premier Skills does is to teach people to speak English through football. So there's a website and you can go there and you can look at, look at this and you think about, you know, think this through. You know, what, what are going to be the benefits for, for Britain if people can speak English? And, it, and if the British government and the Premier League together can teach people to speak English. So you know, there, there is this you know, definitely being able to speak English so we can agree contracts and we can do business and we can strike political deals in English. So you know, there is a soft power dimension there, but also in terms of communicating attractive values to the world. You know, and, and, and no matter where I go in the world, the Premier League, people always want to talk to me about the Premier League, always, always. So... This is not just within the domain of countries which many people see as being, you know, kind of autocratic regimes. It's, it's you know, all, all of us are doing this. Every country is doing this. But clearly what we're seeing in the Gulf, I think, is something next level, um, far more extensive, uh, more elaborate, uh, more nuanced. And there are, there are, there are various elements to it. Um, I think, Partly there is a, there is a, a nation branding dimension. And I guess in, in, in some ways, uh, the, the way to characterize nation branding is we've all got to be known for something. Uh, and if you think about uh, the U.S. nation brand, 
And certainly in sport, if we if we think about the US nation brand, we think about McDonald's and Hollywood and 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 so forth. But if we think about sport, we think about you know the NBA and Michael Jordan and uh, and 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 all of those you know, kind of sporting greats that over the years the the uh, um, the United States has produced the Super Bowl. Um, mm-hmm. So the United the United States shows how sport can be used for branding purposes, and Saudi Arabia wants to be seen in the same way. So it's 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 trying to uh, create a brand that in part is embodied within sport and communicated by sport, and and, and nation branding and and soft power I think are, go go alongside each other, and and soft power as as listeners to the podcast will will, will possibly know is 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 attractive power. Um, it's about trying to convince people that you know, you're, you're legitimate and credible and trustworthy and you, you, you can like us and it's okay to be with us. And, and you know, we want the same things as you do. We like the same things as you do. We're all part of, of the same kinds of community. But this notion of soft power is really important because it's not so much the word soft because everybody focuses on the word soft and it, it's fluffy and nice and warm and familiar and, you know, and sexy and glamorous. But it's a word power that is more significant because Saudi Arabia is trying to get what it wants. And what it wants is it wants to be a more prominent member of the global community. It wants to be able to exert some degree of control over others. It wants to diversify its economy and, and generate new business in sport. It wants to host events. Um, and certainly the feeling in, in Saudi Arabia, among some in, in Saudi Arabian government, circles right now is is that saudi arabia is positioning itself as as the is the center of a new world so just as just as you would go to hollywood to to watch movies and just as you would go to new york to 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 watch the knicks at the madison square garden just as you would go to to france to watch the tour de france so you know suddenly saudi arabia is part of that landscape and that ecosystem and so Obviously, Saudi Arabia is not without controversy. Uh, they are very um, strategic in the way in which they're going about things. Obviously, there is a seductive appeal of of money and investment. But I think ultimately, this is about Saudi Arabia getting what it wants and not necessarily servicing the needs of, of other people in the global community. It's about them, not us. <laughs> Which is the case of any country. Of course, yeah, of course. The, I don't think it's very different in that sense. Yeah. Right? So the question is, is a lot about the legitimacy. So if you have Saudi Arabia investing into sports, such as leave, uh, uh, or, you know, you become an investor, you develop properties, you make business, it helps open, develop relationships, and um, it has a lot of ramifications. But then when it comes to, at least on the West, with the Western vision, the legitimacy is something uh, that is maybe not that well perceived. If you, the examples you mentioned, the US, and so, uh, for example, legitimate because Super Bowl is born there, Knicks are born there. It's all, it's all from there. Whether a World Cup in Qatar or Saudi Arabia hosting tour of Saudi Arabia or investing heavily, it's something very different. Uh, it seems, uh, and might be superficial what I say, but it seems artificial. So maybe it's not as efficient as 
it could be. So I, I guess the thing to do is to go back to the second, the end of the Second World War, and we Westerners, we won. You know, in, in, in that, that 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 essentially has has been the uh, the foundation upon which certainly the the last part of the twentieth century was um, built. You know, the 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 U.S. allies won, and so a lot of institutions that have been established globally have been established by the United States and, and its allies. Um, and so governance and rules have been dominated by Western thinking. And, and, and I guess in, in sporting terms, we can, we can take it even further than, than that, because if you go back to, to, to pre-World War II, you of course had lots of global sport governing bodies being established by Europeans and located in Europe. Um, creating rules based upon our European view of the world. And and one, one only needs to think about the IOC, which is is still in Europe. Yes. Um, you think about uh, FIFA. Uh, FIFA has only ever had two non-European presidents. And one of those was was only for a short period of time. That was immediately post post Blatter when there was a a, a standing president for six months. Yeah. So taking that person out, Havelange is the only you know in those terms, Havelange is the only non European who's ever been president at FIFA. You also have, for example, the FIA, the the global governing body of of motorsport, which um, up until last year had never had a non European president. So the world of sport for the last hundred years has been dominated by West, Western governance, Western rules, uh, Western culture, Western ways of doing things, Western morals, Western values. But because of this giga trend that I, I talked about earlier of globalization, of course, the world has, has changed and it's pivoted. We've seen obviously over the last 30 years, China emerge as an economic power. Um, post-communist Russia, uh, has, has, uh, emerged in a particular way and, and obviously over the last 12 14 15 months uh, that has become even more significant but also india too is is growing rapidly we've seen the gulf nations um focusing not just on sport but other investments and so as the as as the changes have taken as these giga changes have taken place and and these countries have emerged economically and and developed politically in a particular way I, I think in, in very simple terms, they've, they've said, hold on a moment, in sport and, and in other sectors, the, these are your rules, these are your institutions, um, the, the, this is your system of governance. We don't necessarily like or want or understand what you're trying to do. And so we are seeing challenges coming to the hegemony, the existing order, and you mentioned LIV golf there. You know, the history, the history of uh, certainly the, the the kind of history of golf over the last hundred years has been American. Yeah. You're talking about um, governing bodies based in America. Most of the top events in America, most of the top players, American. Uh, you know, big TV contracts, American. Big sponsors, American. Whereby, whereas you know, if you're playing golf in China or you're playing golf in South Korea, or you know, you've got ambitions to, to to host golf tournaments in, for example, Saudi Arabia. You know, this, this is a system of 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 sport that is perhaps not serving your interests in the way that you want it to. So, what you do is you create your own events, you create 
um, perhaps your own rules. You, we're even seeing new global governing bodies emerging. And, and I know that in esports, for example, mm-hmm. certainly in Asia, there's something about, there's a bit of a scramble in Asia as to you know who will become the 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 official esports global governing body. Mm-hmm. And and let's imagine that the, the 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 headquarters of this this new esports global governing body is in Seoul, or perhaps in Jakarta, or maybe in in Shenzhen in in China, and and that immediately changes how a sport is governed. You know the system of governance, the rules, the culture, the values, the morals, the the uh, the the approach to governing sport changes dramatically. So I think with LIV Golf, just to go back to LIV Golf. We are we're we're living in the tipping point, I think, and some of the controversies around around LIV golf, particularly some of the the court cases in the United States that are now being heard, are really this. It's this this. It's the rise of multipolarity. It's the clash of 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 governance. It's the clash of cultures. It's the clash of morals and values. And what we will see come out of this, I think, is. A very different system, a global sporting system over the next maybe 10 years, but certainly up to 2050. And it could well be that we we live in a binary world. You know, we live in a world where you have, you know, the PGA tournaments um, and and we have LI and LIV tournaments as well. And, you know, we're, we're already there. Um, the question the question is, in terms of the balance of power in 2050, where will the balance of power lie? Will it will it still be with the PGA in the United States? Or will it be with LIV Golf in Saudi Arabia? And how sustainable is the business model behind that? Now there's money injected, but and the one who benefits the most from this, in the case of golf, it's interesting. But the one who benefits the most from that are the players, <laughs> because the PGA uh, price money from the tournaments has increased a lot. <laughs> they have options to go to LIV. The best ones team play the majors uh, together, so. But this is a bit of part. But 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 but, but, I, but I think that's a really interesting question because if we go back to 2015-16 in China, we 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 saw the Chinese government um, signalling that it was prepared to spend huge amounts of money on sport, and it was looking at creating by 2025 this world's largest domestic sport economy worth 750 billion dollars, and and we saw that that. The, the gravitation of of sports agents from across the world towards China. And a lot of them didn't understand what it meant to do business in China. And, and, and as a consequence, a lot of them have been um, really? damaged as a consequence. They, you know, they, it wasn't what they thought it was. They found it more complicated. They had to withdraw. Certainly, if we look at, for example, with the, the WTA as a, as a, as a, a, a an organizer and governing body, um with the Pong Shui episode. You know, doing doing business in China is not necessarily uh, the same as doing business in the United States. And and people still don't realize this. Uh and, and one of the things that you know, certainly in China, one of the things that, that China is prone to is is bubbles, investment bubbles. And we've seen this in property. And we're also seeing bubbles, I think, in in um in the Gulf region too. You know, we, we look at the property market in the United Arab Emirates, we're seeing a bubble develop there. And so players in there and their agents can benefit. But uh, but there are some harsh lessons from the Chinese bubble of, of seven, eight years ago and, and how that um, co- caused some problems for, 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 for players and for their representatives. Hmm. Hmm. 
you mentioned that IOC um very European uh FIFA even so moved commercial officers in New York uh having an internationalization strategy I would say but very European as well um many part of the strategies of countries to become influential in sport is to get leadership position another one is to create new properties uh sometimes it's both like the Saudis you create leave and you fight on the golf on the golf part but you 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 have the president of the FIA that is from there if I'm not mistaken so you also get into the big level and big having power in the big international organizations but all these shifts the geopolitical tensions Russia and Ukraine with Ukraine um golf uh golf countries um how can i say i'm not it's very complex for leadership in governing bodies because you might have countries with a lot of purchasing power and possibilities to develop things but it's not aligned what with what matters to people in many places not all places but many places talking about human rights or gender equality also topics that we've seen during the world cup for example and the complexity of the implementation of the world cup in in qatar on those topics um so it puts a lot of pressure on the governing bodies what decisions to make uh what is sustainable what is good for sport what is good for humanity what is good for business and it's not always aligned um, how do you see this complexity i think overall there are <clears throat> this is a matter of of power and control and and i reiterate the point that i made earlier i don't think this is specific to uh, to sport no um you know, we see for example china very active in its development strategies in africa uh africa has a lot of natural resources which china needs to help sustain its uh, economic performance and and political stability um interestingly china uses sport as through stadium diplomacy in africa as a way of <clears throat> access accessing those natural resources that it needs so this this is about power and control and resources really fundamental issues that 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 are going to shape people's lives over the next century and sport is 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 part of that big equation but i i i i if i may i i take you back to what you said about FIFA as a very European organization set up by Europeans based in Europe mostly with European presidents you mentioned the New York office i think that at some some stage over the next 25 years there'll be a FIFA office maybe in Riyadh or a FIFA office maybe in in um in Beijing we already know that Gianni Infantino a Swiss guy Swiss lawyer lives in Doha and so this those changes are already there and the fact that 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 there is a commercial office in New York is ex- is explicit acknowledgement that the big money is no longer in Europe if you want to make big money new york is is a better bet in terms of achieving those commercial returns and and there will be other offices that constitute a better bet in terms of political influence in in beijing or in terms of economic influence in in for example riyadh so the, the, there are the, the, this is not just small incremental changes we we're living in a revolution and mm. we may not know it's a revolution until you know I think when they write the history books in 100 years time or 150 years time people will say hey that was a revolution we are living in a revolution right now 
And what I find interesting in a, in a FIFA context is, is Gianni Infantino's pre-Qatar one-hour monologue that uh, a lot of people were were critical of. There was a lot of cynicism about it. I don't think the way that he had tried to explain the world was especially clear. I, I, I don't think it was the right time to do it. Uh, I think he, he would have been better served by thinking this through more eloquently and trying to accentuate some of the issues in a, in a more sophisticated way. But I have to say, Infantino had a point. And, and what he was trying to do is to characterize a world that is no longer monopolar or bipolar. So in other words, it's not, it's not the old Cold War era, capitalism and communism, nor is it monopolar in terms of you know, North American dominance. We live in a multipolar world where lots of countries have power and lots of countries are keen to exert power and control through, for instance, their deployment of sport policy and strategy. And and there are various ways to work with this, but there's one there's one person, organization, country that stands out for me as one that is trying to um, change its position and and change perceptions of it from within. And I, and I talk here of, of Qatar Sports Investments, mm-hmm. the the owners of Paris Saint Germain, mm-hmm. and and many listeners will know that. Um, PSG did not join the Super League mm-hmm. and instead choosing to support UEFA and choosing to support the European Clubs Association, which is a reflection of Qatari diplomatic strategy. So Qatar doesn't fight. It tries to seek consensus. And uh, you, know, you look at any aspect of its diplomatic strategy, that's what Qatar does. And so what, what based upon that, that philosophy or ideology, if we can put it that way, is you know, uh, Qatar Sports Investments, and more specifically, Nasser Al-Khalifi, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the president of QSI, president of Paris Saint-Germain, supported UEFA, supported the European community, and was able to secure uh, uh, p- the position as president of the European Clubs Association. Mm-hmm. Um, by virtue of being president of the European Clubs Association, he, had a, he now is able to sit on um, UEFA's executive committee. And UEFA's, UEFA's executive committee is, is the body that really signs off rule changes and signs off sponsorship deals and signs off where matches are going to be played. Uh, so Al-Khalifi is, is sitting in these meetings now, and we've seen reports over the last two or three months that UEFA is now contemplating taking okay. Chins League matches outside Europe. <laughs> and, and and I sit back in my chair and scratch my chin and think, hmm, I wonder if we'll have Champions League games in Doha very soon, maybe sponsored by Qatar Airways. So I think we are seeing um, Qatar and, and Qatar Sports Investments and Al-Khalifi trying to change the system from within. But it's interesting, too, that QSI is investing in paddle. Mm-hmm. So um, the barriers to entry, for example, in tennis are significant. You know, it's a U.S.-dominated sport. Uh, a lot of the big tournaments are in the U.S. A lot of the sponsors historically have been in the U.S. The barriers to entry, therefore, are, are, are significant. So this is almost like a bypass attack strategy. What you do is instead you invest in paddle. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're now beginning to see is significant global interest in paddle and, and commercial partners being bought, brought on board, and certainly QSI making making a big uh, a big bet on on paddle. 
Now, I'm not saying the Qatari strategy is the Saudi Arabian strategy or the Indian strategy or the Russian strategy or the Chinese strategy. But what we are seeing from this country of fewer than three million people, uh, a country with only probably about 300,000 Qataris in yeah, it. 10%. And this is this, this is the incredible thing. There are probably no more than 300,000 Qataris in the entire world. <laughs> and yet one of their people sits on UEFA's executive committee and is influencing decisions that UEFA makes. <laughs> and, 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 and that is, that is for me an illustration of this multipolar world that we now live in. Hmm. And part of that power, I, I mean, multipolar world, you mentioned that there are different ways to get into sports where you have a lot of barriers to entry. You might create things, uh, golf paddle uh, where you can step in there's different ways owning a club for example is one of the ways um with qsi um we see a big shift also in the world of sports because of the involvement of all the private equity funds u.s capital going to european soccer it's i think it's 60 70 a number of clubs huge number of big clubs um Saudi money, uh, Qatar money, Russian, not anymore, at least for some time, uh, Chinese investing. So another part of being influential and de developing power is also to get ownership of what is so traditional, European clubs or big uh, sports events that are so traditional and embedded into the DNA of you know, into the country of sport and the country of people. I mean, I, I guess what we know is is uh, is is that in the UEFA Champions League, in the Tour de France, in Manchester United, uh, in Formula One, there is huge economic and political power, and and huge economic and political benefit potentially too. So, if you are, if you are. Let's go back to Paris Saint-Germain in Qatar. You, you, you look at the Paris Saint-Germain first team shirt or the, the club shirt, and it's basically a billboard for brand Qatar. You have Qatar Airways and, and, uh, Uredu. Um, you've got Qatar Tourism Council. Uh, you, what else have you got on there? Qatar National Bank. Um, and, and so th there are, you know, this is not just about politics. It also is also about the bottom line and about cash and about making a financial return and establishing the presence of, in this particular case, of, of Qatar state-owned businesses um, positioning themselves in the world. But I think what's really interesting, whether it's US private equity money or money coming from Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, is that it's not coming from Europe. Mm-hmm. So we know, for instance, or it appears that that Qatar has bid, you know, probably six billion pounds to 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 buy Manchester United. Um, there's nobody in Europe right now that is going to do that. Uh, they might do it as part of a consortium, but they're not going to do that singularly outright themselves. Because in Europe, for anybody to say, "Well, I'm going to spend six billion pounds on a football club or six billion euros on a football club," but certainly a, a government. You know, Macron, if Macron was to announce um, he was going to spend six billion euros buying a football club at a time when pension reforms are uh, are, are, are being fought over, I think this would this would be incredible. So for me, the way that I see Europe is is uh, for the last 30 years, we've been suffering. 
the global economic crash in 2008, I still don't think Europe has fully recovered from that. It certainly diminished our power um, globally. And so in many ways, European sport is becoming a battleground for the Americans and, and those from elsewhere in the world to fight out their ambitions. And so you do have, for instance, you know, if we take France as an example, you've got PSG owned by a, a, a Gulf state and Olympique Lyon and Marseille owned by US private equity investors. You go to Manchester, you've got Manchester United owned by um, US sports entrepreneurs. And on the other side of the city, uh, you've got a, another Gulf state with a, a state entity. So you know, it is almost as though in this new, this new global geopolitical and economic war, Europe's just a battleground. And, 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 what we do have, yes, we have the infrastructure. Yes, we do have the the history, the tradition, and I think it's it's those things that gives Europe its economic and political value. But as we've seen um, with we take City Football Group, that that economic and political value is it's almost as though that is being appropriated and and um, transported through a franchise network to other territories across the world. And the benefits of, of the city name in the city football group, the benefits of the city name are not going, you know, they're not going back to East Manchester, this kind of working class Victorian era community, uh, certainly the Victorian era community when the, the, the club was formed. Instead, you know, city is about generating revenue, about extracting value from markets across the world that benefits Abu Dhabi, not, not, not East Manchester. That's a very interesting way to summarize the situation. I'm curious, as you mentioned, if we look ahead 20, 30 years ago, very curious to see how people will look at the world backward. Right now, when you travel to China or when you travel to uh, uh, to Saudi or Doha, you, I don't know if you feel that, but I had these great, these massive feelings that really Europe is the old continent. <laughs> uh, that it's everything is moving so quick, so. Uh, in some well, anyway, anyway, as, as, as an old man living on an old continent, you know, I, I, I really, really do want to retain some hope that you know I've still got a purpose and Europe's still got a purpose. You know, <laughs> yes. neither of us, neither of us are dead yet. Um, but it, but it is. I, I think we are living in a world where you know, if we make the comparison with cinema, the the, the history of cinema, you know, by and large, has been Hollywood. Films made, movies made by Americans. The Americans are, are, are good guys. They're, they're, they're the ones who always win in the end. And, and there is this projection of American values and the American dream. But we look at what China has been doing over the last 10 years with its investment into the cinema industry and, and, and what Saudi Arabia is now doing. Saudi Arabia is currently spending $64 billion on its, uh, on its film industry. And, and so what we're going to see over the next and what we've seen over the last 10 years and we're going to see over the next 10 years is 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 movies where the 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 good guy is a Saudi Arabian or somebody from China and 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 Chinese values win through in the end and and you know Saudi Arabian values win through in the end and for those people who are saying that's never never going to happen then i would counter that by saying well think about squid games and think about pa uh, parasite and think about k-pop who could have imagined 20 years ago that we would all be watching or consuming South Korean products in the way that we do now. And, and that South, 
those South Korean products, they are the deliberate, they're the outcome of a deliberate South Korean government policy mm. to nation brand, to project soft power, to diversify their economies, to extend their legitimacy, to project cultural influence across the world. Interesting. And Netflix has announced recently that they're spending almost $3 billion on on South Korean content <laughs> uh, because of its the creativity capacity and the success they had to become very international. So it's cultural influence. Uh, it makes me think about, you know, there are many ways uh, to get an influence. Uh, culture is one. Movies, uh, sport is one. Technology is another one. And if we go to technology and sports, it's interesting to see that uh, because technology, as the uh, big technology companies, has the ability to influence the world. I mean, if you if you dominate all the inter- in artificial intelligence systems, you can influence uh, with the algorithm. Uh, so it's a big power as well. And if you look at sports tech. This is interesting because it's it's quite different. Uh, when we mention football, you know, the battle between European uh, for European sport between the U.S. Um, investors and the Gulf, different countries investors. If you look at sports tech, uh, in 2022 there were 90 billion dollars deal, 90 billion dollars deal, which is a lot of money. And if you look at the geographical um movement europe was in value around almost close to 60% and us close to 40% that means the rest of the world that includes i would suppose the gulf i don't know if it's included in europe 5% mm-hmm. so it's uh it's sports tech is small compared to tech in general but still in sports tech europe and US are still the dominant forces and not Asia or Gulf. So I obviously I as I said, I, I don't think I think I don't think Europe or North America or the global north or the West or however however you want to characterize this, we're not dead yet. We're still there. And we, we do have a, a track record and and there are barriers to entry. And I think we do have um systems of governance and institutions and financial markets that enable this this type of investment to take place um it may well be that even in in 2050 europe and north america still are in a strong position because obviously there are there are historically accumulated advantages but i think what's really interesting is is the way is, is to look at policy and strategy in different countries outside what we would call the West or, or or the global global North, and and how organisations are trying to take advantage of of um, of this. I think it is it is across boundaries. So they're investing across boundaries. They're investing um, through networks, and they're often using using sport as the means to an end rather than an end in itself although mm-hmm. they, they still they, they still are investing in sport and and I was uh, as you were asking me the question I was writing down some examples and and if we think about for example the sports technology scene in for example Israel uh, the Israeli government um, 
has has been supporting the private sector to to create this sports tech startup scene mm-hmm. because Israel Israel sees that there is a strategic opportunity to position itself certainly in the Middle East as a as a sports tech startup hub. Uh, you you I'm I'm sure you're familiar, but listeners will be familiar with, for instance, the the Israel uh, startup nation cycling team, the professional cycling team. And uh, and and so this is this is part of this deliberate um, attempt to position the country in this way. If you look at the way in which, and, and I've already mentioned City Football Group and Abu Dhabi, when um, at the same time as as the the Abu Dhabi owners of City Football Group announced a franchise in Mumbai, simultaneously it was acquiring a stake in in Reliance. Uh, which is a, an Indian tech company, and so you know, essentially, what City Football Group now, on behalf of the Abu, Abu Dhabi state, has done is is to uh, serve as as a node in a network that that is growing within India. So, you know, City Football Group, Abu Dhabi on acquires a franchise in Mumbai. Um, Mumbai happens to be India's tech capital, but it's also its entertainment capital and also its financial capital as well. And and so immediately, what what's happening is sport is serving as the focal point for developing uh, connections to financial markets, connections to digital investment opportunities, connections to not just to sport but to entertainment, to movies, to 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 uh, to gaming, to the uh, to to AI and the metaverse and so forth. The other one, the other one that I wrote down as as I was listening to your question is is late last year, twenty twenty two, during the World Cup in Qatar. Is President Xi visited the Gulf region. So China's President Xi, I guess, should have gone to the World Cup, right? But he didn't. He didn't. He went to Riyadh instead. <laughs> and, and a kind of bi- a series of bilateral agreements were, were signed between Saudi Arabia and China. And I think this was Xi really kind of acknowledging that Saudi Arabia is the much greater presence and, and more important in geopolitical Doha. terms than, than Doha and, and even the World Cup in Doha. But very, very quickly uh, after that, we saw Saudi Arabia's public investment fund investing upwards of about $700 million in a Chinese esports business. And so what we now have is 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 a, a sovereign wealth fund from Saudi Arabia invested in a private business. In in the sports tech sector in 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 China, um, and I know the, the the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund has recently established a, a sport investment unit, and so it will be looking to make more of these uh, um, these investments. So, you know, I guess in simple terms, what I'm saying is that yes, we know what the what the world looks like now. Um, it may it may overall you know kind of a, a look look very similar in 2050. But what I do think is we're seeing nations like Saudi Arabia and Israel, um, uh, uh, China and others um, investing in different ways to try and create a new world order in, in sports tech. Um, and, and some of those examples that I've given you, Israel Startup Nation, yeah. City Football Group, and or should I say Abu Dhabi and Reliance uh, in India, um, Saudi Arabia and esports in China. This is how we're seeing challenges emerge. Super interesting. If you were to tell what is happening and will be relevant in the five, tech to, five ten years to come to audience, what do you think they should pay very much attention to? 
That's a great question because I'm currently trying to write five thousand words for a, a for a, a publication who want, who, that wants me to think about what will the world of sport look like in 2040. Um, the other thing is that I've been in several classes recently where students have said to me, "Simon, can you stop? Can you stop telling us this? You're scaring us." Now they they know they they normally tend to be Europeans. You're scaring us with this with what you're saying about the world. Um, I think we will. Just to reiterate again, I don't think the United States and Europe are dead yet, and, and we will continue to have some influence upon the world of sport. But I think that w- that influence will um, be eroded, and it will be different. What I do think, particularly as a European, is I think as Europeans, we've got to decide where we stand on these issues because at the moment we're not really defending ourselves and and the european union i feel plays a really important role in all of this so you know just to go back you know, paris saint germain owned by Catharis, for example the you know, mclaren f1 team owned by um by owned by bahrain uh in front which is based in switzerland owned by um uh chinese investors you know there was even a story some years ago that the, a chinese investor was pr- trying to buy the tour de france from the Amari family Oh, from the sorry, from the Amari organization. Um, so in policy and strategy terms, I think Europe and the United States have really got to get their acts together. There's some there's some evidence that the United States is doing that. It worries me that, that there's still not so much evidence that European governments or the European Union are responding to the challenges they face. So Europe and North America will still be there, but you know, their position will be different. I think we will uh, we will see. Uh, countries in the Gulf in particular, but also India, South Korea, uh, China, um, maybe Japan, possibly others like Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, playing a more prominent role in in, in global sport. Uh, they will influence how sport is governed. They will influence how sport is produced and consumed. Um that will intersect, and, and I think where the where the richness and excitement will come is where North America and Europe intersect with, you know, what's coming out of the Gulf or what's coming out of Southeast Asia. Uh, clearly, the tech sector is very important, as I'm sure you know. Um, at the moment, we, we we the metaverse hype seems to be subsiding a little, and now there there seems to be AI hype, and and so I I, I think that that the tech sector and and what what sports tech and what sports digital looks like that's being shaken out now and i think we'll get a better sense of of how our future in 2050 will be by the time we get to 2030 we will see i i feel different ways of consuming you know we're already seeing different ways of of consuming over the top and on demand and uh, we think about Generation Z consumers, Generation Alpha consumers, and, and what they're going to want from sport in five, seven, 10, 20 years time. Um, standing in a, in a stadium on a wet Wednesday night in November in, in, uh, in, in Lille or in Lens or these kinds of places, you know, I, I'm not necessarily sure that there will be a lot of people who want to do these things. They'll want to consume in different ways. Obviously, the whole, issue of convergence convergence is an old word now but but now more than ever with new technology digital technology with as we say with the metaverse and ai thinking about convergence with entertainment and lifestyle and leisure and 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 the tech sectors 
um, this is going to be here important too. And of course, I think the other thing as well we've got to say is 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 uh, around the environment and how the environment shapes what we do because we we really can't keep flying around the world. We can't keep keep flying large large numbers of people around the world. We can't stage events that use lots of natural resources to 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 to. You know, we 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 already know fiscal resources are limited in some countries, but you know there are finite natural resources too, and so I think the environment will really shape what sport is delivered, when it's delivered, how we engage with it. Um, for me, what would be an apocalypse is some somehow we you know, we we live in the, these virtual worlds and and we attend sport in in virtual spaces without ever having ever meeting uh, people. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a, I always think back to the 1982 film Blade Runner, the Ridley Scott mm. film Blade Runner, and this is the kind of futuristic apocalypse that I very often think about. I really hope that we don't get there, and I don't think that we will, um, because I think people still do value human experiences at the moment, whether mm. they do in whether they do in in 2075. I don't know, but I think we do now. Um, but as I say, I, I think if we we want a vision of the future, you know, watch watch the two Blade Runner movies, <laughs> and 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 think about you know if 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 Harrison Ford in in Blade Runner nineteen eighty two or or if uh, Ryan Gosling in in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, if they were sport fans, how would they be consuming sport in the environments in which they live in Blade Runner? And 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 that's the kind of as I say for me the kind of apocalyptic scenarios I don't really don't want to think about. But I think we do have to give some thought to, you know, how sport might be in 2075. Yeah. Especially in a world where we want to live with more purpose, I would say. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how to mix purpose and business strategies and align uh, to be successful. Because I still think the, the two are needed to be together. If not, it's going to be short-term uh, strategies, and so. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there are there there are there are there are two things that are never going to never going to go away. Well, there's certainly one thing that's never going to go away. Go away, fingers crossed. Actually, there are two things that are never going to go away, fingers crossed. Yeah. And one is is the planet itself. Yeah. And and the planet. And its resources, including its climate, are going to shape how sport is. And and the second thing that I hope never goes away is is human beings themselves. Mm-hmm. And and I think fundamental to human beings, you know, it's about survival. And with survival come issues of power and control. And and so those things are never going to go away. And and for me, therefore, it's just a case of you know, how we live our lives on a planet with depleted resources and a changing climate and, and and with our survival at stake, what that means in terms of exerting power and control. And, and inside that sits sport, you know, as does everything else that we do. Um, but, but I think, you know, in, in terms of, of sport, it is worth speculating about how the environment sh- will shape how we produce and consume sport and also in terms of the global sporting system, you know, who has the power, who has the control? We've just lived 50, 60, 70 years where North America has had the power and control, possibly with some European support. Uh, but in 2075 or in the year, you know, 2100, will it still be the case that, you know, the Americans are in charge? And, and I suspect not. Yeah. 
Lots to think about. Lots to think about. I guess the way to the, the, the way to summarize: all great empire, empires fall, even in sport. <laughs> if our audience wants to follow your work, I mean, you're publishing quite a lot, um, you, and it's very interesting. What are your What are your next publications? So uh, I I've got several coming out. So one is a, a book through Routledge called "The Geopolitical Economy of Sport: uh, Money, Power, Politics, and the State." Mm. Which I think, which I think covers much of what we've discussed today. The 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 other one is is the future of motorsport, mm. um, considering motorsport from a from a business, political, and social perspective. Otherwise, I'm I'm trying to 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 write a, a five thousand word piece now on on what what sport will look like in 2040. What's What's really interesting about writing about the future is most people really don't think about it too much. No, which which I guess from a meditation and, and and Buddhist perspective is a good thing, um, but in terms of planning for the future is is not a good thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I I I, tr- I try to write when big things happen. I try to write something about it, even if it's a thousand words. And and so you know through platforms like the conversation and um, you know, I I write pieces for various newspapers i've got something coming out about saudi arabia next week via uh, a new american platform called the messenger so i try um i'm not sure i always succeed but at least i try cool so i invite everyone to follow you on link on linkedin uh where you can see all the the news and the also publication from simon um now simon we have a ritual at the size masters podcast with a series of quick questions for quick answers. Okay. Let's shoot. Who's your favorite all-time athlete and why? Don't have one. Okay. Who's your favorite coach? Is it the same answer? <laughs> uh, I very often think about, uh, let me answer this more succinctly. My favorite coach, Brian Clough, Manager of Nottingham Forest when they they won the European Cup in the late seventies. Brian Clough was born and brought up in the same town as me. Okay. Uh, controversial, big mouth, antagonised people sometimes, and I think that probably describes me as well. So it's something about Middlesbrough boys. <laughs> what is your favourite event? Uh, I think the World Cup still. Still. Something is the, the, the FIFA the, the the FIFA Men's Football World Cup still, even now. Your favorite stadium? Uh probably Essen Park, Middlesbrough. Your favorite word? My favorite word is heteroscedasticity. It's a, what, a what stati- heteroscedasticity. It's a, a statistical term. My first degree was economics. <laughs> One great advice you have received or learned you would like to share. Uh, never piss anybody off because you don't know when you'll meet and meet them again. <laughs> That's a very good one. Uh, what profession or service on your own would you have liked to attempt? Either a journalist or a photographer. Actually, photojournalist. That's probably the best way to put it. Photojournalist. Mm-hmm. You're kind of a journalist. Oh, really? Doing all your research. If you Some had... people call it hackademia, hackademia. So it's kind of you know, like a, a journalist hack. So hackademia. Hackademia. <laughs> if you had one more hour every day, what would you do with it? Probably the same as I'm already doing, unfortunately, which is uh, think too much, write a lot, 
and then worry about how I'm going to do it all again tomorrow. <laughs> Academia. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You can have a rest now. Okay. Simon, I thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Again, I invite everyone to follow you on LinkedIn and to, to see all your publications. Uh, you can find a lot on your LinkedIn or your Twitter. And at, at Professor, sorry, at Prof underscore Chadwick, at Prof underscore Chadwick on Twitter. Indeed, we will share that one. I wish you the best for your endeavors. And I look forward to that to that 5,000 words paper on the future of sport. Quite Thank an you. interesting one. Thank you. It's it's uh, bothering me. It's bothering me at the moment. It is bothering me. <laughs> if you want to chat about it, I'm kind of happy to share my views. I don't know if they will be helpful, but happy to do it. And yeah, thanks again for this interesting chat. Uh, thanks for always sharing uh, your thoughts, and uh, not many people dare to do that. So and spend the time to do that so much. So it's very useful what you're doing. So thanks again. And thank 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 you for inviting me to do this. Thank you. And hopefully next time we have a physical beer together. <laughs> I'm sure. Somewhere somewhere with warm weather and cold beer. So Welcome come to Mexico. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Cheers. Thank Thanks you. Thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast. We'd love you to subscribe. Please leave a review or rate the podcast. It will help us improve. We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy. Enjoy.